0: This is John Flannery, your host. Welcome to our podcast, Let Freedom Ring. No more appropriate name could I imagine than that in these troubled days.
1: I stand here knowing that my story is
0: part of the larger American story. Our nation is about equality and opportunity for everyone. I think there's blame on both sides. We are in the battle for the soul of this nation. Of course. There is dissent because not everyone agrees, nor is everyone worthy of our democracy. We are in a battle to restore the soul of our nation. The answer is to rely on you. Not a time of life, but a state of mind, a temper of the will, a quality of imagination, a predominance of courage over timidity, of the appetite for adventure over the love of the ease, the cruelty. The obstacles of this swiftly changing planet will not yield to the obsolete dogmas and outworn slogans. They cannot be moved by those who cling to a present that has already died. Prefer the illusion of security to the excitement and danger that come, with even the most peaceful progress. It's difficult because it never seems to let up. We always seem to have to work. We must have the resolve to press on. Others have. I'm not- it takes, however difficult the moment, yes sir. however frustrating the hour, it will not be long no, because true pressure will rise again. Yes, In these times when our nation is at risk, let's talk about how we restore the republic and let freedom ring once again. Stay tuned. Welcome to left freedom ring today we're going to talk about critical race theory across the nation local volunteer school boards are under siege as our public and private schools, uh, more generally. The rallying cry is critical race theory, and the misunderstanding of what that means is abundant. It is the cover for, in my opinion, doing little or nothing to understand, ameliorate, or reverse racism in our institutions. Father Christopher Devron is the principal of Fordham Prep, a Jesuit school I attended just a few years ago, and I want to welcome you, Father. Thank you, Johns. great to be with you. The hard job in
1: Jesuit schools is, is principal. I do not have that title. I'm the president. So I want to give uh, give credit to the principal and not steal his title. But
0: okay, so you're the president. Oh, okay. Well, I'm honored to have you as uh, as our guest today. You're from the northwest suburbs of Chicago originally, isn't that correct? Northwest suburbs of Chicago, in particular the mean streets of Palatine, which is where I grew up. <laughs> and at an early age, apparently you had some uh, empathy and concern for those that were. Uh, I don't know if the general term would be disadvantaged, but people that didn't have some of the opportunities you had. Is that right?
1: For sure. I mean, I credit my parents. They were very socially active in introducing us to people and communities in poverty and helping us open our eyes to to the blessings we had, as well as the opportunities others did not. And so we spent, you know, we spent a lot of time, especially around the holidays, ensuring that that we were giving to to families in need. And and that that deeply impacted me for
0: the rest of my life. Now, you started out with a BA in poli-sci at the University of Notre Dame. The, were you thinking of a political career yourself? I was thinking I wanted to be John Flannery. I wanted to be... <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> Flannery will get you everywhere, in- right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I definitely wanted to be an attorney and that and I actually worked in a big law firm summers when I was at Notre Dame. So I worked in, in a big Chicago firm and, and I think deep down I knew that that was not what I wanted, but it was sort of the path that others were, were following at the time if you were a liberal arts major. At a private university, you're going to go to law school, so that was that. That was sort of baked in for me in the
0: '80s, and that's what uh, that was going to be my path. So you went to Loyola though to get a, a master's in the history of philosophy. That seems like a a retreat, a little bit from the active life of being a lawyer or a politician.
1: Well, there's there's a step missing there, which is that instead of going to law school, I entered the Jesuits, and then as a Jesuit, I went to Loyola of my, my, my formation. so that, that masters in the history of philosophy I love philosophy. I thought I wanted to, and maybe get a PhD um, but that came to a and an then after a couple of years to, with the masters and I moved on in my my formation as a Jesuit
0: makes sense. and then you went to Xavier University in Louisiana right?
1: Yeah so so my story is that I even even before I entered the Jesuits I I began to seek out diversity because I felt like even though I had these sort of touchstones of, of experiences as a child I didn't I, there were a lot of people I didn't understand a lot of communities I didn't understand and I wanted and going to Notre Dame didn't really help me because as great as it was in a classroom education I was still largely around fairly affluent young people like I was. And so I realized that there was this gap in my education. So after I graduated from Notre Dame, I came to the Bronx. I taught at Cardinal Spellman High School, and I had my introduction to a world that was much larger than my own. And so when I then entered the Jesuits two years later, I started, I gravitated toward work with marginalized communities and, and my superiors basically blessed that idea and 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 i'm grateful for it because i learned so much so as i worked in communities of color particularly urban communities i realized that there was a lot i didn't understand about the history of of racism but also the history of black culture in our country um, where it came from and black religious culture as well so my superiors approved that i would do a, a heavy load of graduate work in in black catholic studies and the black religious experience which which was great and i loved it and it was it it, it helped in in how then i
0: approached the settings where I was working, the communities I was working with? Well, my escape route out of the Bronx was getting a lot of education and and it worked. I got opportunities because of it. And I was lucky because they had scholarship programs, including when I got a Fordham prep, which in in those days was a less expensive uh, uh, piece of education. Uh, But I think it was $400. You went on to Harvard Divinity School. You got a Master of Divinity from Boston College. And so obviously... You decided to be to balance the experience that you had in the inner city with a heavy dose of insight into theology, I would guess. Is that right? For sure.
1: And that's, you know, that's really part of our, our tradition as Jesuits is that we want to bring the, you know, the church to the world and the world to the church. We want to be in that position of, of intellectual inquiry because Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, he wanted us to be able to interpret the signs of the times and the gospel in a way that's compelling to people. And his belief was that that this required an educated society of Jesus, which is what he founded. So he placed a premium on education and for us as Jesuits. And then I think as lay people early on in the 15th century as they 16th century as they saw Jesuit schools for Jesuits, they then said, we want this for for us as well. And that's how we
0: got started in education. You know, so many centuries. Marvelous synthesis. Now, the thing that brings us together is that I saw several months ago, you wrote in the publication, America, the Jesuit Review, an article entitled, Should Catholic Schools Teach Critical Race Theory? And just last year, as you even say in the article, we had the George Floyd murder case resulting in the conviction of the officer who literally publicly choked him to death preserved on video. And the question then became. Was it just one or several people or was it the institution? And the rallying cry around the nation was that we had racism that was endemic to the institutions themselves and weren't isolated individual acts. This and other examples of police brutality, it seemed, prompted the claim that this wasn't just one officer who was likely uh, racist, but that racism was endemic to the force. Is that a, a fair statement of the distinction that's being made in critical race theory?
1: I think so. I'm, I'm not a caveat here. Is I'm not a critical race theorist. Look, I, th- I think one of the things that we've discovered in this dialogue over the last several months is that critical race theory is amorphous and it's not. You know, you have Derrick Bell at at Harvard, who's considered the the godfather of critical race theory. But there are many proponents of of critical race theory, and and I don't want to I don't want to pretend I'm a spokesperson for for critical race theory. But I do think, yeah, that that. That the idea that that racism is institutionalized or systemic, that it it exists in practices. So you look at redlining, for example, right? That that's a that, that I think is the most clear cut case of systemic racism. Is that by and large, black people, especially in urban communities, have been disinherited from from wealth passed down to them because of redlining, and 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 therefore. They find their, themselves way behind where, you know, where others do. Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, wrote a fantastic article on reparations. And I'm not saying I'm for reparations or not for it. I don't kind of know where I stand on that. But the whole beginning part of the article was about redlining on the west side of Chicago. And it, it, it presented a very clear case for as an, as an example of systemic racism that I, it's hard to argue against it. you you read it and it's laid out and it's very clear and he's not the only one that's done these studies but I think redlining is perhaps the best example of systemic racism that we that we could possibly imagine
0: so racism is then socially constructed is that that's what you're saying if you're redlining in conjunction with the banks and so forth it's a it's a barrier to equality to advancement to enjoyment of life it's discrimination
1: yeah and it's it's impacted generational wealth right because if if you couldn't own your home i mean that's a big that's a big indicator of family wealth probably the most you know most valuable thing that's the value of their home and if you were robbed from being able to own a home which is what redlining did and the way the mortgage game worked you didn't have a valuable asset you were robbed a valuable asset because of the color of your skin I mean, that's the only way that you can you can understand it right
0: right now if one is uh, indifferent in the structure say to say well, I haven't done anything. I'm not doing anything. I'm in the structure. Do you find that troubling or not? I do.
1: So look, I I realized the title of the article, your editors choose the title, and the editors of America wanted to choose something that was going to be provocative. So the, the, the title was, Should Catholic Schools Teach Critical Race Theory? They wanted to get the hits, right? To draw people in. So, right. But really, my my argument is that as Roman Catholics, we don't have to. We don't have to base anything on critical race theory. We have something called Catholic social teaching, which which is the best kept secret in our faith, but which, unfortunately, right? That's that's. Well, no, that's, no.
0: I, can't, I I hear what you're saying, but I disagree. I mean, my my uh, indoctrination at the prep was that social justice was critical, and I I measure those who are political christians by whether or not they accept the sermon on the mount and that and other elements of those readings you know putting aside all the other philosophers that that find ways to approach living in a society with responsibility to others that that's social justice and i and i see a reaction among some so-called Christians, not Roman Catholics uh, necessarily, who against that social justice. Why should I do that? And it's kind of the iPhone, iPad kind of thinking, I think after 9-11, in which people, it's about me, you know. I don't have yeah. a responsibility. You you do whatever you're gonna do.
1: Well, let me let me unpack this a little bit because your question is are I think I think I understand your question to be, are there Given where we are with examples of inherited systemic racism and it's not, you know, it's not omnipresent but it 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 does mm-hmm. impact people, what what's our responsibility as people? So one of the best definitions of sin we're taught and I give my professor James Keenan at Boston College, a Jesuit um, theologian, I give him credit for this. He said failure to bother to love. And mm-hmm. what I like about that definition is that it's both It it touches both acts of commission and omission. So ignoring ignoring the plight or or having willful blinders on about social sin, about how policies degrade people's dignity. That is, we're responsible for that. Uh, If you if you call yourself a Christian, you are responsible for the ways in which public policy degrade human dignity, and so. And so we do have a responsibility to to both be aware, but also to strive to change things, to make things better, not just for ourselves, but for the marginalized, for the least of our brothers and sisters. That is, you are right, John, that's absolutely clear in the Gospels, um, but it's something that is ignored. And that's why I do think Catholic social teaching is a best kept secret because you may have learned it, but I think it's evident in, in when we hear a lot of Christians talk today that they mm-hmm. haven't learned it and that they're not interested in it and that they what they really believe in is individual individual purity and holiness and piety but as far as this this wider social awareness um they're not necessarily uh tuned into that
0: well I guess you would say that to some extent, the law is a two-edged sword. It has both created these constructs that have racist tendencies or practices, and then we have the other side of the law, like Brown against the Board of Education, uh, too slowly enunciating that separating uh, persons of color from others is not equality is not acceptable, is unconstitutional. And then we had the massive resistance in the South in a state where I now am, Virginia, which chooses to have its elections like this year, off year, so they're not affected by the federal. And they did enormous things with uh, the Jim Crow laws, which is a set of laws, which was racist and you know so we we unfortunately we have a lot of examples of exactly what you said when you talked about redlining different categories so uh, i would assume that you therefore endorse those laws that seek to combat this racism or this indifferent posture of this is the way it is we didn't do anything it's here
1: yes so look i think i think it's a matter of our faith i think it's a matter of papal teaching and you know you know this because you've been a student of the encyclicals of the social gospel that the church teaches but look John Paul II who is no pushover and you know is a, is a hero to to conservative catholics John Paul II himself said dozens of times that there is such a thing as structural sin as structural evil that structural sin and evil is what I would call systemic racism. It's that teaching affirms we can set up laws and systems in ways that that over time perpetuate inequality, injustice, discrimination. I, I think that that's a, that is as close to an article of faith. Look, this has been the church's teaching for 50 years. It's not explicit teaching, right? And then if you think about original sin and what that means, you know, you could say that it there are traces of it even even in the church's early teaching. So so yes, I do think that we are called to to do what you're saying is to discern whether laws are just or not. And by the way, this is what Martin Luther King Jr. did, right? Is he looked he did so from a moral he was he was operating from a religious and a moral set of values to say and, and and therefore about human dignity universally, right, to say that what's happening in Jim Crow is an offense to human dignity and therefore an offense to God.
0: Now, uh, you talk about human dignity, but before you wrote the article, were you hearing uh, from other schools and or the prep, obviously, that uh, there was a reaction from persons of color, claims of neglect, disrespect and bigotry? And you write that that you heard about these claims, but was that an impetus to write this article?
1: Yes. So there, I mean, look, there was in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder, and, and we saw it throughout institutions. We, thought we saw it in the private sector. We saw it in education. It cut through all different institutions where because that because that incident was so egregious, it opened up wounds that had been festering, and people came forward. People came forward. We had an alumni court at Fordham Prep. Many private schools had alumni who set up uh, Instagram pages where they, they recounted experiences of neglect and bias. And so, you know, I think our job as leaders is to listen to those experiences, draw reasonable conclusions and then enhance the experience going forward to ensure that we're doing that work of of love and justice that the gospel requires.
0: Now, you, you mentioned in, in your article sort of a, a snap phrase, D-E-I, for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I take it that this was at least a partial remedy or approach to the claims and concerns about neglect, disrespect, and bigotry. Is that right?
1: It is. There are limitations using that that language. I've I've evolved, and I think our team here at Fordham Prep even has evolved, and and we've decided to to pivot a little bit away from DEI and to ground our our practices in three other, three other values that are a little bit closer to Catholic social
0: teaching. So we're talking here about dignity, belonging, and justice. I see. Now, as a guy who spent a lot of time rumbling around the term justice and uh, having heard in first-year law class, which you luckily skipped, the notion that uh, somebody say, well, that's not just, you know, so what is justice? That becomes the Socratic dialogue in the first-year law class, you know, sort of I know it when I see it. How uh, How do you apply that notion of justice or and mostly, it's fairness. When Rawls talks about justice, uh, he talks about fairness a lot. Is that fair? And, and that due process is fundamental fairness. That's what it means. So, how how is it implied in this context?
1: Yeah. Well, you just uh, you just uh, triggered PTSD by bringing up the theory of justice by John Rawls because I did uh, <laughs> I did have pretty deeply.
0: But um, it's well, a look, thick I it's think, a thick book. Think, I'll tell you that. Oh my goodness. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I uh, look, I think for us in the Judeo-Christian tradition, justice is what has a much longer strand that goes back to the prophet, the prophetic books in, in the Hebrew scriptures and the actions of the prophets in defense of the widow and the orphan, in defense of the marginalized. And even, even moving a bit out of the, the Jewish world into saying, hey, there are this is this is universal. It's even beyond the, the designation of religious background, which you get hints of in the in the Old Testament, and then of course becomes even more pervasive in, in the New Testament with, with Paul's embrace of the Greeks and the Gentiles, where there is this universal move to say that that justice and fairness, and a story like the Good Samaritan, right? Where you're you're blowing up categories and you're saying everybody deserves this fair treatment, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what your label is, you deserve the opportunity and the and the sense of dignity that everybody else has.
0: Now, having talked about your evolving approach and dealing with those concerns of neglect, disrespect, and bigotry, no doubt you got a backlash, correct?
1: I would say that the Jesuit schools and private schools, independent schools throughout the country got a backlash. You know, there was there was a there was both an original outcry. And, and a bit of a backlash here, but it was more uh, pronounced in other places. But I began to talk to other school leaders, and, and we saw this backlash really rising and, and coming on you know, quite strong. So, so yeah, so I saw that. I saw people rising up and saying, well i thought we're supposed to be colorblind why are we spending so much time on race and and i think that that's uh, as i tried to as i tried to say in the article that's the other side and and there is a strand of truth to that too that that we don't want to make so much of race that we forget our common humanity and that was sort of the cry from the other side is don't we do we really want to tell nine-year-olds that, you know, everybody's, do we want to tell white nine-year-olds that they, sh- they should be blamed for racism? You know, there's obviously a problem with educational development. You don't want to tell a nine-year-old that because that doesn't make any sense. So I think some of the criticism from, you know, for lack of a better term, the right, I think it was grounded in something that was very valuable for us to reflect.
0: Well, you know, I, I pulled down a, a textbook I enjoyed from advanced placement history in high school, which I still have. It shows I I haven't moved on, maybe. And uh, Thomas Bailey wrote this book, gorgeous book, covers everything. But when you when you read about slavery, you're reading in the present context about conduct that by this time, even a child knows we're against slavery and that's wrong, but we did it. So that it'd be one thing to say America was racist. It's another to say we did this and it was racist and we had a war over it and it means this and there are these different sides and so forth. So for a child to use his or her faculties is going to lead them to make conclusions about about Native Americans, about children trying to go to a school, a child looking at that today, is going, why is that? Because I Stevie, he's he's uh, he's black, and he goes to school. You mean there was a time when he couldn't go to school? Those those questions are, seem to me are natural, and it seems to me that those are the remedy, a partial remedy, that education, that information, to perhaps take something home to their parents and to carry something forward as citizens.
1: Oh, I I couldn't agree more, and you know I don't think we want to sugarcoat history. And avoid the reality of the historic atrocity of racism or the historic atrocity of the Holocaust, for example. there was I just read a story, I think it was last week or the week before, where bending over backwards to try to show both sides. There was somebody taped, videotaped a, a principal at a school. I'm not sure I'm going to get this all right. But she was saying, well, now we have to show both sides to everything. So make sure that if you teach the Holocaust, you're showing the atrocity of it. But also show the other side, and I kind of scratched my head and said, "Really? Yeah, what is, is that, that other what side? This has come to? Be? Yeah. You're like, I'm not signing up for that. I'm not mm-hmm. going to sign up for that. And so, so there is, you know, we have to be very clear-eyed about the evils in history." And we have to be clear out about teaching our students what these evils are. And, and hopefully nobody, nobody's
0: arguing that, that we shouldn't do that. That would be, you know, that would be very cold. <laughs> Come to Virginia. <laughs> I'm uh, I tell people that I came to Virginia and I've been a missionary and uh, <laughs> we've uh, <laughs> and we we've made advances and we have an election coming up right now that may set us back a few years because we have a fellow youngkin, And I'm not asking you to embrace any of this, but from my perspective, You have this fellow Youngkin never ran for public office and is spewing forth this kind of stuff. And critical race theory is part of it, which they're taking on these volunteers and local school boards. So I'm not asking for your comment on it, but
1: I don't want to jeopardize our our tax
0: exemption status here at Fordham Prep. I I won't allow you to. I won't allow you. To, I'm not going to take you there. So the golden rule is not enough. Then racism exists in structures, not just individuals. That, that's one of the, the the summation points I get out of uh, your analysis of where we are with critical race theory and how one should deal with racism and structures.
1: It is, and but I, I do think we need to take a careful lens. To the complexity of these situations, there's obviously race-based income gaps and things like that. And so, to at the same time, I do get concerned about an overly reductive kind of move that 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 sees every that sees race everywhere in everything. And I think that that is, you know, I think that that's a reasonable critique of of the right and it, it, or a reasonable critique of, that the right has of of the left. And I think that um. You know, uh, we also have to be careful about this setting up of everybody is either an oppressed or an oppressor. Um, that is that is definitely an anthropology which is at odds with the Catholic social teaching as well. So, you know, I'm I'm wary. So, I want to operate from Catholic social teaching. I don't want to operate from Critical race theory or anti-critical race theory. I want to learn more about this best kept secret and help our students and our faculty uh, mine it for what for what it's worth.
0: I see you someday as the president of Fordham University. <laughs> 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 you have a you have a diplomacy that is um, uh, praiseworthy. Really, I mean that. Uh, okay, so let's go back to John Paul II. He talks about structures of sin, and then Pope Francis was impatient with weak responses. And uh, not in your article, but one of my favorite quotes uh, of Jesus is he cursed those who were uh, tepid. He would spit them forth from his mouth. And I think that's in in tune with Francis when he's talking about we don't want weak responses, and, and in many cases, we're not getting any response. I mean, you're obviously a spokesperson for dealing with this problem that's been historic and not just in America, but certainly we've had our problems. So how do we reconcile the inert with the need to act better than weak, but to do something more than to just say the golden rule?
1: Yeah, well, so Martin Luther King Jr., he had he had a phrase he used that, that kind of puts it in a more positive spin. He talked about the fierce urgency of now. Mm. Um, so, using this moment this this time in history to to make it different we're only here once we're, we're our, we, we can only make an impact in a very short span of of years and time and so what are we gonna do as individuals as a faith community as as educational bodies as schools to Pass on a less racist, a, a more just, a place where people who are traditionally marginalized feel a sense of of inclusion. And it's good. It's threatening. It's threatening to people. How do we do that? You're right. If we, if we're passive, we're not we're not going to be part of the change that
0: that we we profess is important. So when Martin Luther King says the arc of justice can be long, he, he doesn't expect us to be indifferent as that arc continues. You, you mentioned several categories that, you know, maybe not everybody appreciates the, the prejudice. Now, when we talk about the Floyd case, we talk about really an indifference to life. But beyond that, you mentioned there are longer sentences, that there's a different standard applied if you're a person of color as opposed to other people. In housing, of course, we have the redlining. Economics, there's a significant difference between opportunities to earn as well as what one earns. In healthcare, we have mortality greater among uh, persons of color. There's no question we have a host of possibilities for us to improve. Now, as the president of a high school, do you see in society what those minds that you're trying to train? Now, uh, do you think they're going to approach these things and do better than the current generation, which is not doing well?
1: I mean, that's our that's our goal and aim in Jesuit secondary education is that we graduate a a young man who is in our case, we're all boys, but there's co-ed Jesuit schools as well. So we graduate young people who are more just or more religious. Or more intellectually competent, um, who are more open to growth than than they were when they came. And so one thing, one very, pr- this is going to sound strange, but I but bear with me. One of the best things we do here, so we're located in metropolitan New York. Uh, we're in the Bronx, actually. We draw from 120 zip codes. But well, one of the most successful programs I think we have about, about this question is our students, uh, a huge number of them every summer go to Tennessee, to Appalachia, to build homes for habitat for humanity. We've built so many homes in this particular uh, county that there's a, there's a road named Ford and Prep Drive. We've That's built 33 cool. homes there. But you know what it does is you know one of the stereotypes you could could absorb living in New York City or New York metropolitan area is that the only people who are poor are are black people or are latino people. To have our students go down to Tennessee and see, you know, kind of the hillbilly elegy side of of poverty is so eye-opening for them. And And it helps broaden their their sense of, hey, they're also, you know, poverty doesn't necessarily have a color. Yes, you can look at at statistics, but unfortunately, those statistics can blind us to the human experience. And for them to go down and build homes for largely uh, white people who are impoverished, who are Trump supporters, uh, you know, and you see that you see the MAGA flags all over the place. Um, that's a really good that's an eye opening experience. And, and ironically, I think that helps them be empathetic and sensitive to all people on, on the margins, because that is that universal sense of no matter who somebody is, no matter what their what their racial composition or, or the background, if they're
0: in need. Now, uh, you, you do discuss some things that an educational institution could do. And I thought it would be you, you say curriculum higher courses leadership and faculty how do you see that working in uh, real time and are you already doing these things
1: so we're you know we're undertaking a curriculum review actually today is a um, a non-teaching day and all of our all of our teachers are reviewing their curriculum and one of the things that we've asked them is you know, let's ensure that there are voices and uh, representatives, uh, voices from from across the spectrum of the human experience when we're talking about literature. By the way, Toni Morrison is not Toni Morrison is a is one of the best Catholic writers. She's Catholic, and if you read her books, you come away with a sense of the sacramental imagination that is similar to. You put her up against Flannery O'Connor, and you have you have similarities and you sort of say, hmm, this is interesting. So so we do need to look across the curriculum. And, you know, I think all schools do and ensure that that there are representative voices and figures both in history and in literature. But I say later in the article that this idea that we should, you know, throw out to kill a mockingbird because it may have some anachronistic uh, language in it or it may use some racial slurs, Boy, you know, I have some problems with that too. So this should be done in a discerning, careful way, and 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 I feel like there's a lot of herky-jerky decisions that are that are being made by schools that are not as thoughtful and
0: careful as as we need or would want. And toward the conclusion of your your piece, you you basically, if I understand it correctly, have two courses that you think should be happening simultaneously. One is a reckoning, as I shorten, you know, your expression of the idea. And the other is that we reflect upon our common humanity. How do you see that working out? Cornell West, he um he came out very strongly against the
1: the elimination of classics departments within a higher ed. And and I think that's a great example. You know, he he believed that people could Find common humanity in the stories, the literature of people who are not like them. And that goes both ways, by the way. It goes, it means that, you know, you look at, at his intellectual journey, he had an awakening to, to justice through his experience of, you know, reading Cicero, right? So, you know, let's, let's take a broad view of this and let's remember, and this is, this is what Martin Luther King did too. Remember he had a, he had an education in, in the classics and in humanities that informed his understanding of justice that wasn't simply i'm just going to read black literature so i think that common humanity like if, if we really believe that every person is created in a likeness and image of god then they have then they have inside of them a kernel of of divinity and great artists whether it's caravaggio uh, whether it's a great writer like tony morrison they speak to universal values that we all need so let's 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 not assume that a, a black kid from the Bronx can't find something about his experience in, in reading Cicero in Latin, or can't find some, you know, can't understand that To Kill a Mockingbird is, speaks to his experience as well, even though it's written by a, a white, a white writer. So that's what I want to, that's what I want to argue for. And I think that's, that's also at the heart of our of our, of our Christian faith, this idea that, you know, the Samaritan could, could reach this man on the road who was of a different background than he was. We, we do, we do, I believe we do have more in common than we do that divides or separates us. I don't think that means, by the way, that you can't acknowledge that there's systemic racism. And this is where the both and is so important that in Catholic teaching frequently, we're not saying one or the other, but we're saying no, both these things can be held at the same time. And and in fact, to hold both of these things at the same time, A, the reality of sy- systemic racism, B, our common humanity, is actually speaks to
0: our, our human experience in, in a more profound way than to say, no, it's one or the other. I very much enjoyed our visit together. It uh, makes me a, a virtual visit back to the prep, and I'll hope to do something in person sometime soon because it would be fun to walk around with you. But uh, is there anything you'd like to add that I haven't asked you about that you know that seems important, or some way you'd like to sum up anything that you've already discussed?
1: Well, just that you know, as as a Christian, and as a Catholic Christian, um, we have this poll of you know, original sin, the reality of original sin, which is is the social condition into which we're born, each of us. But we also believe that God's light and God's work and the kingdom of God is stronger than the evil that we confront. And this was the hope and the optimism of Martin Luther King. And this is what I believe too. And I think that this is like the idea that we're, we're irredeemable and we can't make progress and we can't achieve and we can't, grow closer to the society that God wants us to form closer to the kingdom values, closer to those beatitudes that, that, that you spoke of earlier, you know, that, that's, that's not true. If you're a Christian, you have to believe that God has overcome evil ultimately. And what we're, what we're trying to do is participate in that goodness and that light. So um, that's certainly what I pray for, for myself, for the students that we educate here, for our alumni like you, John, who've gone on to do fantastic things, making the world a better place. And uh, really, it's about becoming a man for others. And and that's um, that's our motto and creed here at Fordham Prep, that you become a man for others and dedicate your life to God's greater glory and the help of your neighbor. And uh, that's going to that's gonna change, that's going to transform the world, I really believe that, uh, one student at a time. So, I'm so grateful for you for reaching out to me and I hope this I hope the conversation was helpful
0: to you and uh, and, and anyone who listens to your podcast. Father Denver, and I, I really appreciate you joining us and I think I think it's going to be very helpful to people that are trying to work their way through these uh, questions about what are we doing, what need we do and and how, in my opinion, uh, there's been distortion about, what it is we're about when we're talking about uh, critical race theory. So thanks again. Thanks a million, John. Really appreciate it. Have a great day.